Hello everybody! Hello viewers! Hello followers! Hello listeners, students! And hello masters of your own destiny! <laughs> that is my Yoda, Yoda voice. It would sound something like, Masters of your own destiny, you must be! <laughs> okay. I know it's the accent I think I'm making for Yoda. <laughs> the reason why I start with Yoda today is not only because he's one of my favorite characters in the Star Wars universe, but because today we are very lucky to have with us Paul Hirsch, which is one of the lead editors for the original Star Wars, The Empire Strike Back. I mean, I watched a movie when I was a kid and I cannot believe I'm going to have the opportunity to talk to the lead editor, one of the lead editors of the movie. He is very well known for also their work in Mission Impossible and one of my oldest favorites, Ferris Bueller Day Off. He has more than 35 movies under his belt and he's of course Academy Award winner for his work in Star Wars. So I cannot wait to have this conversation with Paul. The students are waiting for us, like they are very very excited too, like I always do invite two students to be part of the conversation and co-host uh, episodes with me, so I'm very excited to have the students here too. I want to thank WCNY for their support, thank you so much really for believing in us. This is from Suarez Baseman, let's start our conversation with Paul Hirsch right away. Here we go. Who of a better expert that have you in the house? So before we... Thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. So before we go into, you know, jumping in the pool and start swimming, let me introduce uh, two of my students uh, from SUNY Spiegel. Please, guys, you can introduce yourself. We can start with Brittany and then Ryan. So uh, Paul can know a little more about you. All right. So as it was said, my name is Brittany. Uh, I am a political science and a cinema and screen studies major. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I am a junior technically, but by credits, I'm a senior. So I'm hoping to graduate this December. And I look forward to learning a lot from this conversation to apply to my future, my future endeavors. <laughs> You're setting a high bar, Brittany. I'm, I'm starting to get a little nervous. Well, hi, Mr. Hirsch. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, my name is Ryan, of course. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> and uh, I am actually a dual major in cinema and screen studies in English. Uh, so I'll be graduating in the spring of 2022. I have about a year and a half to go. And um, for as long as I can remember, I've always loved film. And uh, it just so happens that a bunch of those movies happen to be films that you've worked on. So this is a huge honor for me. The honor is mine. Uh, from when you were working on, from what you've seen now, uh, what do you think has been the biggest change in the industry, at least in like the past 20 years, I would say? Well, uh, there's a huge change going on right now in the industry. Um, and uh, the movie business has gone through changes similar to this throughout its history. From over 100 years ago, when sound was introduced, that was revolutionary. Um, when TV came along, uh, pictures reacted by making the screens wider and bigger and going color, you know, original TVs were just black and white. So, uh, whenever there's a technological advance in delivering, um, you know, film stories to the public, 
the industry goes through some kind of convulsion. And, um, you know, later on it was videotape and then it was uh, DVDs. And now we're moving into the streaming era. And these are all similar changes. It's all about how to deliver the movies to the public, the different technological platforms. But the streaming platform um, is the most, uh, it's the biggest of all of these convulsions. And I think it's going to reshape um, the landscape you know, from my perspective as an old guy, it's sort of unfortunate for younger people. They may see it as an advantage. I don't really know. But uh, I do know that there's a kind of a magic that occurs when many people are in a single room watching a movie together that uh, even though everyone may watch the, you know, some episode, the new episode of some series at the same time, it's not the same impact it's not the same it's not the same human experience and that excitement you get you come into the theater and every seat is taken oh there's a couple over there let's see if we can get over there you know there's sort of an excitement from all these people in one place in one room and experiencing a hit picture you know um, or a comedy especially comedies when you hear all that laughter together uh, it's an experience like no other so uh, I think that the pandemic has proved, if anything, that we are social animals, that we need to be with other people and around other people. And um, I think that theaters will survive um, this streaming that's, you know, everything is moving to streaming. But there's some, there's some definite uh, danger signs for me that, that I see, um, which is that, you know, the the people financing the production of films don't talk about making movies. They talk about creating content. Mm. And to me, creating content implies there are these big vats that need to be filled up. You know, we need, it's not about telling a story. It's about, we got, we got to, you know, we got to fill this, this empty space up with something. And that's why I think a lot of the shows that I've seen uh, this past year, feel padded they feel like they're stretched out the storytelling is unnecessarily slow or, or meandering or you know the great thing about the two-hour story which is what feature films are essentially compared to an eight-hour story a 10-hour story which is what series are is that the story has to find its own length and it's not cut to a prescribed we have this 44 minute vat to fill up, you know? Uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's truer to its own intentions by having to, f to find its own shape and length. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm always very curious and I tell my students, especially through the editing process, that technology, you have the opportunity because of your career to move you know, from editing uh, with film and, and, and going to uh, digital. However, is certain things that a good storyteller and a good editor need to have, it doesn't matter the medium he's working on. In your opinion, what are, let's say we can name three or four very important things that any good editor should have 
at the moment that editing a story. It doesn't matter, again, if the technology in five years is going to change. I always say to my students, yeah, you can actually now film a movie almost from your phone, but the way you tell the story and a good story, the formula more or less is, is still the same. What do you think are four characteristics of Let a good editor? Uh, I think that you're quite right in pointing out that the tools don't really matter. Uh, whether you edit on film or videotape or digitally, it, it's a mental process. It's a creative process that has nothing to do with the tools. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare would not have written better plays if he had been working on a word processor. He was working with a quill and an ink pot of ink. So uh, it's the it's the work and not the tool. Writing is not about the pen and editing is not about the equipment. So we get that out of the way. So uh, one of the things, the, two of the principles I would say um, that I look for are uh, never bore the audience. Don't bore them. And don't confuse the audience. And for personally, I like clarity, except when you're uh, manipulating the audience in, in some way. And one of the things that, that we have to consider in storytelling is we're going to give the audience some information. We call that exposition. Now, the order in which we give the details of this information where, you know, we suddenly reveal in real nine of the second of the first trilogy of the second film of the first trilogy that Darth Vader is Luke's father. That bit of information is saved for a moment where the revelation becomes dramatic. So when you choose to release the information is a key consideration. And you don't necessarily always start at the beginning. Although it's starting to seem to me that every single movie has a flashback and it's getting to be a little bit overused where you start a story, you're totally confused, you don't know what's going on. And then the card comes up and it says, you know, six months earlier or mm -hmm. three years earlier, you know, and they take you back. So I think it's gotten to be a bit of a cliche and I'm sort of relieved when I see a, a story that proceeds from beginning to end without a flashback. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think those are the basic things. Don't confuse the audience. Uh, release the information in a way that intrigues them, invites them to, to stay involved in the story. Uh, and um, don't bore them. That's the key thing. And, uh, you know, for, for a good example of how to start a story, I was working on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And the script originally had a big battle scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, it was on snowmobiles on a frozen lake. And the stunt guys were really pumped. They were going to do st snowmobile stunts nobody had ever seen in their lives. It was going to be really fantastic. And this was all intercut with a scene of uh, um, uh, Paula. I um, uh, can't remember her name now. Uh, anyway, the agent on the train is trying to get information. The train is coming into the station. There's a guy on the platform who's looking for you know, the, the, all these elements are in place. And um, the studio said, well, you know, it's, it's really getting to be too expensive. We're going to cut out the ice battle. So now we had this train station scene that really was meant to only intercut with the ice battle. And without the ice battle, the train station scene, it didn't really play as the beginning of a movie. 
So what we did was we took the very end of that scene and made that the beginning of the movie. And then the body of the scene, we we took it and we played it later. So what happens is at the beginning of the movie, there's all these events that take place that the audience doesn't know what's going on. Guy bursts out of a door on a roof. This guy's being chased. People are shooting at him. He jumps off the edge of the building. He hits a button. A big inflatable bag blows up. He lands on it. He rolls off. Some guys keep shooting at him. He gets away. He goes around the corner. A woman comes toward him, shoots him, steals what's in his in his shoulder bag. She steals the, the, the bag he's carrying on his shoulder. So think, what's going on here, you know? And it's the best way to start a movie, which is to raise a lot of questions in the audience's mind that they'll want to see answered. Mm. By contrast, I worked in some other movies where uh, the producers felt that the way to start the movie was to give the audience the information that would help them understand this fantasy, you know, um, that we were, it was a fantasy film and we were, so we wanted to give them the lay of the land, so to speak. And what happened was the audience got confused because they, they were being given the answers to questions they haven't even formulated in their own minds yet. So they thought, well, what do you mean? What, what is this information? What do I do with all this information you're giving me? And they, they didn't realize that, you know, you need to raise questions in the audience's mind, not give them answers before they have even thought of the question. So mm. editing is a wonderful profession because uh, if it were any harder, it would be totally discouraging. But if it were any easier, it would be boring. Yeah. It sort of fits that right in the middle. It's sort of challenging enough to be interesting and uh, easy enough that it's, it's possible to do. Uh, I watched... I watched the cutting the cutting edge, the magic of movie editing, and I actually had a question. It was like said that in the film, that film and scenes can have an emotional effect, um, but when editing, you kind of just kind of have to see them as um, scenes and not trying to get too emotionally involved. But have you ever faced a time where you were in a situation where you became very emotionally involved in that your editing? Yes, the answer is yes. Uh, I did a picture called Steel Magnolias which involved um, the untimely death of a young woman and played by Julia Roberts. And her mother was uh, um, Sally Field. And there's a funeral scene in the cemetery. And the movie was based on a play by Robert Harling. And I went to see the play and there's this moment uh, on stage where you're you're uh, crying one minute and the next minute you're laughing and how they managed that switch from making you cry to making you laugh was what made the picture, uh, made the play work. And the challenge in doing the movie was uh, to have that work equally well on the screen. So um, in any event, uh, they were down in New Orleans, or in Louisiana, not New Orleans, but in Louisiana, uh, shooting the film. And I was back in L.A. And I had had a, uh, a loss that year of a friend, uh, a woman I'd known since college. And uh, she had been my assistant for a while, and she'd married a dear friend of mine. And she was a 
she, you know, a big part of my life. And uh, she died of um, breast cancer in June. And here it was July or August, and they were shooting this movie. And I was getting these this scene, uh, dailies for this scene in the cemetery. And Sally Field was uh, making me cry. The dailies were making me cry. And it was partly because the performance was so great, but also because I was grieving for my friend who had just died. I can jog all the way to Texas and back, but my daughter can't. She never could. God, I'm so mad. I don't know what to do. I want to know why. I want to know why. So I'd look at these dailies and I'd think, uh, I think I'd rather work on something else, you know, and I'd, put them aside and I cut other scenes. And then eventually I'd cut everything in the movie except this one scene. And uh, I thought, well, I got to do it eventually. And I steeled myself and I powered through it and I cut the scene to the best of my ability. And then I didn't even rewind and look at it again. I just sort of <laughs> just went through it and cut it and cut it into the reel. And the next time I saw it was when I presented it to the director. Herbert Ross, and uh, he had lost his wife earlier in that year. And he was sort of going through the same kind of thing as I was, uh, reliving his grief during the movie, watching this very sad scene that ends with a big laugh. Right. If you haven't seen Steel Magnolias, you should see it. It's really good. Uh, anyway, uh, he didn't want to go back into it either. So he... He said, great, that's great. So the picture as it appears in the film now is my first cut because neither of us wanted to deal with the emotional difficulty of revisiting it. Mm -hmm. And Paul, we cannot talk, I mean, we have to talk about Star Wars uh, for sure. I mean, it's no way way that (laughs) I have this opportunity. Let me tell you something. Yeah. You know, I remember a certain moments in your life that you remember so clearly who was next to you, when and how. The first time that I saw Star Wars, 19, I was five, six years old. I remember clearly the theater, my uncle, my cousins, uh, and it changed not only my life, but the life of many, no? Um, Was it too scary for you at that age? Well, that Vader, <laughs> that Vader was very scary. Like yeah. that, yeah, that guy scared a lot out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, you won the Oscars in 1977 because of Star Wars. Uh, in some point, when you start editing these uh, trilogies and these movies, were you aware of 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 what what you were involved in the impact of these movies and the stories, or you just Edited and no, no, it was just just a job for a really exciting job working for a young director who had had a a huge hit, huge hit in American Graffiti. I think American Graffiti, uh, for its return on investment, is one of the most successful films of all time. It was made for $700,000 and made 50 million, so that's a Seventy to one return on investment. That's pretty good. Seventy to one. So it is. It is very good. Um, 
anyway, working for George, it was, uh, that's all I cared about. You know, I, I was just concerned of, I was trying to make a living. It's, I made, you know, I was trying to have a young family and support myself and pay the rent and, you know, uh, mundane concerns like that. I wasn't thinking of 45 years later, you know, uh, it would be some worldwide phenomenon, uh, billion dollar industry and theme parks. And, you know, I never, mm -hmm. none of that was, mm -hmm. none of that was on the horizon for me. I'm just hoping to get another job after it was over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brittany and Ryan, I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask your last questions. Unfortunately, like it always happens uh, when you're having fam time fly and we could be here the entire night, but I don't think that's what we want. Uh, but before we say goodbye, I'm going to give you the chance to do your last questions uh, to Paul. My question is, uh, with working with every, um, you... With working with everybody, and I know when coming down to editing and uh, working with the director, was there ever a time that you worked with like a director and like, an actor with when you're at, during your editing process? Yeah, that's happened. Uh, occasionally, a star on a film uh, will, you know, have ideas about the editing, and the producers and the director may want to indulge him. This has happened to me. So it's especially, it happens more now that uh, uh, working digitally, it makes it easier to save a copy, put it aside, and then get in the sandbox and play around with the, the actor and let him try his ideas and then uh, show them and get a reaction and so forth. So yeah, that's happened to me that uh, the director will go away for a couple of days. The actor will come in will do his cut, you know, and and, uh, and then throw it out. And would you say that was like a positive or negative experience? Um, well, I didn't mind it. Hmm. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I happened to know the actor. He was a friend of my son growing up. Oh, so, okay. So he was, he was somebody I knew and he was very, you know, it was very convivial and friendly. Um, That was not unpleasant. Mm. Okay, that's good. But I can see how it could be. Uh, some, you know, fighting over control of the cut can can get to be uh, kind of bloodthirsty at times. Yeah, but I, you know, I have no power over that, so <sighs> you know, uh, I can't make. I, there's no way that the editor can uh, can uh, force the opposing forces to reach consensus. You know, they have to. They have to find consensus on their own. We can make suggestions, but uh, uh, someone else is going to have to make the decisions. Right. And the fights over who gets to make those decisions can be, you know, heated. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But nobody ever says, oh, let the, let the editor decide. All right. They should. Sometimes. <laughs> <They> should. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes they can't reach consensus and I'll say, what about this? And, They go, okay, yeah. let's try that. <laughs> right. So my question to you is just to say goodbye uh, to the students. Of course, there's a lot of um, uh, students uh, that want to go into the career of editing. Uh, what is your advice, I guess? What, what, what would be the first thing that they should uh, try to do after school to try to get into the editing, uh, a movie editing business? 
I would say network with your peers, uh, people you may have gotten to know, graduated a year before you, have may have gotten a, a toehold in the business. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, as you approach these entry-level jobs, they often come from your peers and not from your superiors because mm-hmm. they don't know about you. People tend to hire people they know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody a year ahead of you is working at a production company and they say, you know, we got to find somebody. And you say, well, uh, I know this woman, Brittany, she's really great. You know, and you say, bring Brittany in and we'll talk to her. You know, that. so I would say network with people, you know, who are in the business. And uh, I think that's your, your best approach. And then just remember that uh, when you start out, nobody cares about what a genius you are. All they want to know is how hard you're going to work and how well you do the tasks assigned to you. And it's usually getting lunch. And if you don't screw up getting lunch, you know, uh, for several months, the next picture, you'll have a more responsible job. So uh, people are used to working their way up and attitude, not aptitude, and uh, talk to your peers is my mm-hmm. advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, Paul, we appreciate so much your time. Really, thank you so much for allowing us to have this conversation with you, to learn from you. Uh, all the best this uh, new year that we're starting in 2021. And hopefully, well, we will be able to have you back with us. But uh, we really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>